You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to crossroadslive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. Good morning, and Merry Christmas to all of you. We're reading from Luke chapter 1. Verses 31 through 33. Thank you for standing up (laughs) to remind you. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning again. My name is Dean Foster. Uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Crossroads. And I was given the prompt uh, for today, our Advent series, uh, to answer two questions, which are basically the same question. First, what does Jesus' return mean for the gospel? And why is his return good news? As I began studying, uh, I started thinking uh, of this Advent series uh, from the perspective of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, where Andrew's message last week uh, represented the ghost of Christmas past, uh, answering questions of how Advent affects the world. And um, from Genesis and original sin to Herod and Jerusalem troubled over uh, the announcement of, of the Messiah, um, we've, we've seen this power struggle go on. Uh, between the world and Jesus. And it's a reminder of our need for a Savior both then and now, trusting in God versus trusting in our own power. And of course, then he looked at Revelation and totally ruined my analogy, but forget that for a minute. Now, Ryan's study, the first study of this, was more akin to the ghost of Christmas present, where uh, he went on to teach uh, about us waiting um, today and what that looks like for Christians, that waiting is normal for the Christian, that waiting is faith, that it's communion with Christ, and that it's worth it. Uh, And those are perfect reminders for today as Christians as we wait uh, for the second coming. And so, that would need to make my study the ghost of Christmas future. And that's the really, really scary one. Uh, And for some reason, that makes me a little excited because we get to look at how Advent, the waiting uh, for Jesus' second coming, affects the gospel and how his return is indeed scary for some, uh, but oh, such good news. And so to answer those questions, we first must understand the gospel. The gospel means good news. But when we say gospel, uh, we mean a very specific piece of good news. This news refers to Jesus' first coming that the Son of God was born as a man. He lived 30-something years uh, on earth. He preached a message about a kingdom, the kingdom of God, that had finally come and that all people of the earth must repent and believe in this gospel. So what is this good news? Well, it's a fix. It's a cure for the problem of sin that we saw from the beginning. Andrew walked us through that last week, the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. Sin has been an issue. It's a rebellion against God, a disobedience to his law, a rejection of his promises. Yet he was kind, patient, and gracious for years and years, for decades and decades, millennia and millennia, while he enacted his plans among his people. And so what was that good news? That God had come to deal with sin, to offer salvation, to offer forgiveness, to offer justice, and to offer mercy to many, all in one fell swoop. And he did this through Jesus. Even in Jesus' day when he was preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God and what it was like, uh, the people still weren't sure how God was going to fix it. How could it be fixed? For thousands of years, they've relied on God's system of sacrifice at the tabernacle and temple to offer substitution for the sins of his people. And that was the fixes they knew it in that day. But it was never permanent. That was always going on. It was year after year, lamb after lamb was slain to atone for the sins of those who said they would trust God. Well, all this foreshadowed Jesus' first coming. And the cross, 
the real fix, the real solution to the problem of sin. And that solution was Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would be offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Your sins are paid for by the blood of the Lamb. And there's no more atoning work that can be done. Jesus has paid it all. And that's very good news. But that's not all the good news, because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave to prove everything he said was true, but also to demonstrate again his power over the grave and his ability to offer eternal life to those who trust him to take away their sins. So this is the gospel. It's the good news we share with our friends and foes alike. Our family, friends, neighbors, all must hear and know the gospel that Jesus provided a fix for sin through his death and resurrection. Now, one of the best summaries of the gospel given is by uh, the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. So I'm going to ask you to turn there. We're going to spend a bit of time in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, 1 Corinthians feels to me like the least Christmassy passage I could choose. It's a fantastic book, but it's also a bit of a depressing book because on display is just how terrible Christians can be at Christianity. It's a glaring reminder that Christians from the earliest church uh, can really do damage in the name of Christ and need constant care and instruction to do better, to follow in the ways of Jesus instead of following in the ways of the world. Now, sadly, not a lot has changed since then, nearly 2,000 years later. But that also gives me hope because while there was grace and help for the Christians in that day, there's grace and hope for us now. Well, by the time you get to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has done a whole lot of head bashing and neck wringing, all out of love, obviously. Uh, And now he's getting to a reminder to the Christians about the gospel and the implications of the gospel for our lives. So he gives a great summary of it here beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. We'll stop there. Paul is reminding the Christians in Corinth of the gospel, the main good news by which we are saved. Christ, the Messiah, the promised one was Jesus who died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This is good news. Jesus died for our sins and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to a whole bunch of people. He includes Peter, the 12, 500 at one time, uh, James, all the apostles, and lastly, uh, to Paul himself. So Jesus died, was raised, and he appeared to many. Now, what does this good news have anything to do with his second coming? Well, what exactly does the good news do? What does Jesus' death and resurrection unlock? Salvation from sin, which means salvation from judgment. Uh, keep your place here in 1 Corinthians 15, because we're going to be coming back to it. But turn, if you will, to John chapter 5. We're going to spend some time in John chapter 5. While you're turning there, I'm going to share another passage with you uh, to prime the pump for our study in John 5. We looked at this passage with the middle school students on last Sunday uh, and at youth group on, on Wednesday with some of them. Last week, we were studying alongside of you in the main sanctuary uh, this Advent series, and we were trying to answer the question uh, about how the Advent or the second coming uh, affects the world. And naturally, this conversation came to judgment. Um, When Jesus comes again, the scripture makes it incredibly clear that he's going to come in judgment of the world. And so we have to talk about punishment for sin, spiritual death, hell, the lake of fire, the judgment 
that is upon each and every one of us as Jesus gave a way of rescue from. This is a way he describes the second coming to his disciples, and it's Matthew 25, which will go up on the screen, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now that's what his second coming means. Judgment, punishment, and reward. And that's pretty intense, but it's what Jesus lets us know is going to happen at his second coming. And that should place all the more emphasis on the importance of the gospel message. The gospel, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is the only escape from that. And what I like about this description Jesus gives, the analogy of the shepherds uh, separating the sheep from the goats, is that I had a hand in raising sheep and goats. Uh, you might have, if, if you heard that, you'll remember, I've told a very embarrassing story um, of my experience raising sheep. And if you remember that story, you'll know I didn't particularly like that sheep. Um, it was a stupid, mean old sheep, and it got thrown down a hill. <laughs> now, <clears throat> I actually really liked my goats. Way more than the sheep. Loved the goats, hated the sheep. Now, This strikes a bit different to me, this story, because it reminds me that it doesn't matter whether you like the sheep or the goat. One kind is going to be accepted by God, and one kind is not. And the believer is considered righteous, not because he or she lived a righteous life, but because they believed in the one who did live a righteous life and trusts him in his death and resurrection to be saved. It doesn't matter whether you know an unbeliever, someone who rejects that gospel message, and you happen to like that person a lot. They seem like a pretty good person. They think the way you do. You get along. You do fun things with that person. You might like them more than you like some of the believers you see around church. It doesn't matter how much you like them. They are in danger of eternal punishment, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Because they've rejected Jesus. They've rejected the gospel. So you better preach the gospel to them because of that judgment. Now John 5 gets more into it and also reminds us of the restorative nature of Jesus and his gospel. At this point in John 5, uh, Jesus has healed a crippled man on the Sabbath and made a claim about the Father that puts Jesus on equal standing with God. And verse 18 tells us that that's actually why the Jews... Um, the religious leaders, they wanted to kill Jesus. And so they're going to be real upset by what he says next. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. We'll stop there. Now, do we grasp the stupendously glorious statements Jesus just made there? Jesus isn't doing these things on his own. He's doing what the Father is doing. Jesus is enacting the will of the Father, and he challenges the listeners and the religious leaders who are marveling at Jesus healing this man on the Sabbath, that they're going to see greater works than this so that they may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, the Son gives life to whom he will. 
Now, God has, in Scripture up to this point, uh, only raised a handful of people to life. It's incredibly rare. It's a power that God alone has. But the Son, Jesus, is saying he has this power and will give life to whom he wills. And then he talks about judgment, that the judgment has been handed over from the Father to the Son, and that all would honor the Son or respect the Son as they do the Father. And so he makes these bold statements that whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is absolutely describing himself as divine and on equal footing as the Father, and yet submitting so that he would enact the Father's plans. It's incredible. And it's from this incredible statement about who he is and what he's come to do that he makes this statement about those who believe in him, that verse 24 again, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. What? This is such good news. Those who hear and believe Jesus, the Father who sent him with this gospel message, they have eternal life. They will not come into judgment, meaning their sins are forgiven. There's no judgment on them. They've passed from death to life. There's so much packed into that verse. And he doesn't stop there. That would be enough to make Jesus the most amazing person to ever live. But he continues on. It gets even even cooler. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and, then, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. we we'll stop there. Now, this is interesting because the gospel message has power to bring life. The scriptures teach us that because of sin, we're dead. The second that Adam and Eve sinned, they were dead. Now, not physically though their bodies began to experience that decay as well. But spiritually, they were dead in trespasses and sins. It was the law from the very beginning. And the only hope people had from this death over the ages was to trust God who could give life. Life both spiritually and physically. A life after death and the ability to be called righteous even though our unrighteousness caused our spirits to die. Throughout the Old Testament, We have story after story of people trusting God, believing in him to fix it through his promises, through sacrifices of atonement, through obedience and devotion to him. Yet all the while, those who trusted him have been waiting for this first arrival that we celebrate at Christmas, the first arrival of the Messiah to deal with that penalty of sin once and for all so that they might have life. The time had come that those who hear the voice of the Son of God will hear and live. And this is a promise God's been promising for some time. And Jesus seems like in this moment, he's just like, it's me, I'm here. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. There is life in him and authority to execute judgment. He says, because he is that son of man. The figure that we read about in Daniel seven thirteen that says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That sounds very familiar to our angelic announcement of Jesus in Luke 1 we read at the beginning. This is all marvelous stuff. The gospel, the power of, and implications of the gospel are on full display. Yet Jesus says, don't marvel at this. How is it possible we wouldn't marvel at that? 
Or don't worry about any of that for a while. While that time was upon them, in that moment, the gospel was about to come out to play on the stage of history before them. But Jesus tells them of a time that would eventually come, an hour is coming, when all who were in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. All will be resurrected. You get a picture of that with the story of Lazarus. Jesus is saying there's going to come a time when everyone's going to come out of the tombs. Not just the good, but the bad also. All people will be brought to the resurrection. Some will go to what Jesus calls eternal life, the resurrection of life, and others to the resurrection of judgment. Now turn back to 1 Corinthians Corinthians 15 if you haven't already. Uh, Much of the rest of this chapter 15 deals with the subject of the resurrection. The importance of the resurrection to Christendom is paramount. You cannot have Christianity without the resurrection of Christ. And similarly, the gospel, the good news, declares that just as there was a resurrection of Christ, there will be a resurrection of believers, like what we've already read in John 5, passages like Isaiah 26, and so many other prophecies are about. Well, We'll see how Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians 15. Skip all the way down to verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there will come a time when Jesus returns and things are gonna change. Our bodies are going to change. Whether alive or dead, we'll be raised imperishable, a body without mortality. Death will be finally, utterly defeated. That will be a day when everything changes. All the sorrows and troubles of this world will be gone. The powers over this world will once and for all be defeated. That's what's promised to us in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. This and so much more is what lays in wait for us at his second coming. I'm going to encourage you guys to read through the last four chapters of Revelation sometime and remind yourself of how this story ends and how the next one begins. I'll remind you again at the end, but some of that story is summarized for us here in 1 Corinthians 15. Just look up a couple verses to verse 21, which says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And a few things to note there. Life, the resurrection of the dead, comes through Jesus. Just as through sin, like Adam, all find death, through Christ, all will find life. Also, Jesus will destroy every rule and authority and power. You can read about that in Revelation 19 and 20. It's a graphic picture of Jesus destroying everyone who comes to stand against him at his second coming. Kings and kingdoms as well as demons, all will fall before him. But what's mentioned here is the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Christians have found this fascinating for millennia because Jesus, in a very real way, has defeated death. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.10 says, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. There is life after this life through Jesus and the gospel message of his death and resurrection. But at this point, that's still hope and faith. The death hasn't been completely destroyed, has it? 
Anyone who's ever attended a funeral or memorial of a loved one knows this. I came across this quote. which says, so we have this antithesis that death has been vanquished so that even though I still must face it and one day dwell in it, it cannot be fatal to me. But it still bothers me. And I love that quote. So honest. Because death still affects us. And while it's true that Christians have found spiritual life through Christ, whereas through Adam we've all found death, there's still the physical death that must be dealt with. There still is this problem of suffering. We still face mourning and pain. It isn't Christian to deny suffering. It is Christian to cry. It is Christian to suffer. It is Christian to be brokenhearted. You think you can fly above this? Christ himself did not fly above this. The Garden of Gethsemane, he was overwhelmed to the point of death, crying out to God to release him from the tragic circumstances by which he was about to go. Mourning, weeping, suffering is part of this life still. Death is the last enemy. But all these things will one day pass away at his second coming. Revelation 21.4 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We are still waiting for that. We have a hard time even imagining a world without death and mourning and crying and pain. Because it's a large part of what we know from a very young age. We try our best in culture to downplay it or deflect it or minimize these things in our lives. That just lands us in trouble later on. We understand that death is still an enemy. It's lost some of its power because we hope and believe in the promises of God of life after this life. It takes away the sting of death, but not entirely. And at his second coming, even that enemy will be defeated. That will one day come to pass. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we wait? Because we're still faced with trials and tribulation. There's still wars and rumors of wars. There's still death and tragedy that we see on the regular. What do we do while we wait for his second coming? Well, we have a one-sentence answer given to us at the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and that'll start us on the right path to answering those questions. This is pretty much the summary instruction Paul gives as the results of the entire book of 1 Corinthians, but especially what we've just been reading. What do you do with the knowledge of the resurrection, the new bodies, the promises of no more death, and as a result of the gospel message? What do you do with that? Well, that's verse 58. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So speaking to the beloved brothers, some in this room or watching online uh, might not fit into that category. These things are promised to believers, uh, to those who trust in this gospel message. But you have the opportunity to today, this morning, to cry out to God, I believe. I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe he rose from the dead. I ask that he would forgive me of my sins and I call him Lord, my King, my Savior. Those who can do that this morning are among the beloved brothers. But if you haven't done that, then judgment is still upon you. Flee that coming judgment and repent. Turn from your sin and turn to God. To the beloved brothers, we're given two things to be and something to do. What are we to be? It says be steadfast and immovable. Steadfast or resolute, dutiful, unwavering, loyal. Might add faithful. Be fiercely loyal to your king. Does that mean you won't have doubts? No. Examples all throughout scripture of men of God with serious doubts and serious flaws, serious sins they committed in life. God can forgive those things. But the thing that separates people of God from everyone else is faith. 
You have doubt. Believe. Be steadfast in your faith. He's coming again. Live a life that is steadfast in your faith and in the understanding that this joyous promise of the gospel awaits you. And be immovable, which sounds just like it means. You can't move it. Very similar to steadfast. Again, a call for the Christians to be solid in their faith in the Lord, in the gospel, in these promises. Now, why would Paul even have to say this? Because doubts come, and that's so normal. What happens when those doubts come? Well, you strengthen yourself, plant yourself in the truth. Things start happening that begin to deconstruct your faith. What are you to do? Well, you build it back with the Lord, who is himself our example of steadfastness and immovability. You and I are prone to move. He is not. Strengthen yourself in him. He is steadfast and immovable. Scripture teaches this all over the place. That is who our God is. And I have grown a little tired and somewhat unsympathetic with those who say they went through some sort of deconstruction of their faith, which disheartens me because good friends of mine have done this. Pastors I know have done this. Lots of famous Christians have done this. When they say they've lost their faith, or they've had their faith deconstructed. For a while, it was even a thing for people to post their journey of deconstruction of their faith on their YouTube channel or TikTok or whatever. What they all had in common was this. I had questions. I had doubts. And what did I do? Well, I started talking with other people with those questions and doubts. I started researching things that fed my doubts. I started researching alternatives to Christianity and after a while of really struggling and looking into things, I realized I didn't want to be a Christian anymore. I still don't really know what I am. I'm trying to figure that out. But just like so many others, I've abandoned my faith now. Whoopee. Instead of being steadfast and immovable, they moved. Instead of taking that doubt and going to the Lord with it, They went to others who'd lost their way or were also in the process of losing their way. When they were deconstructing, they started rebuilding. The building blocks they were utilizing were anti-faith. So what did they expect? And why are we surprised when that happens? They often boast that they came to this decision logically. I'd argue that the only logical place for them to land in that process was going to be unbelief. Why? because that's what they were aiming for and feeding. All Christians take swims in the river of doubt. The real question when you find yourself in that river is what shore are you swimming for? Belief or unbelief? I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. Be immovable, steadfast in your faith in these things because attacks from the enemy will come. They will come. An enemy who isn't fully dealt with yet but soon will be. Believe it, Christian. The only way we came to faith and were trained in righteousness is because people who came before us held the line. They were immovable and steadfast in faith. And now it's our turn to hold the line for this generation and the next. That's what Paul encourages us to be. Now let's see what he encourages the believers to do. The other practical application Paul gives to the believers is to always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Oh, what a great reminder. Paul encourages the Christians to continue the work of the Lord. Well, what is that? That could be any number of things. But in answering the question, how does the second coming of Christ affect the gospel? Well, practically, it should light a fire under us to proclaim the gospel to evangelize, to spread the good news to all nations. Paul's instructions here sound awfully familiar to Jesus' signs at the end times he gives in Matthew 24, verse 10. It says, Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now we need to be steadfast 
and immovable in our faith so we don't get counted as those whose love will grow cold or who were led astray by false prophets or those who fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Instead, we must endure. And one thing that needs to happen while we endure is spreading that gospel of the kingdom. It must be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. And in a very real way, that has happened. The Bible's been translated in just about every tongue and progress is is closing the gap of that very quickly. Surely there are unreached groups of people missionaries are making their ways to even now. But to much of the globe, it's been reached at one point with this gospel message. So why is it that students in our schools, neighbors on our blocks, athletes on our sports teams, co-workers, family members, friends, here in our nation, state, county, city, don't know the gospel? Maybe because they haven't been told. Maybe they have been told and they've rejected it. It's very likely. Do you know that for sure? What harm could be done by telling them again and again and again and again? We all have people who need to hear the gospel message. Jesus is coming back. Don't you think it's important then to tell them these things since eternal life hangs in the balance. So much work to be done for the kingdom. But don't forget this, the great commission, the great mission by which all Christians play a part. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Isn't that comforting to know too? that when we do this, he's always with us. As we abound in the work of the Lord, he's there with us. As we do kingdom things, as we make much of Jesus, as we follow in the ways of Jesus, as we make disciples who love God and love others, as we do these things, our labor is not in vain. I have days where I feel like my labor has been in vain. I don't know about you. I'll, I'll be leading a small group discussion with some of your students. And at the end of it, it's like, I'm doing nothing. I'm not getting through. They don't know Jesus. Everything's hopeless. God help me. God help them. <laughs> I may have those thoughts more often than you think. <clears throat> but we can rest in this promise that the labor's not in vain. God is working. God is pleased when we work for his kingdom. When we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and when we live that out with our lives, when we take what we're learning in our our Luke series and practically apply those things to our daily lives and weekly rhythms, God is pleased, and he uses those efforts. They're not in vain. So take heart and get to work. Advent is about waiting for Jesus' second coming. Waiting is not just sitting around doing nothing. That's boring. Okay, God has called us to participate in the restorative work he is working in his creation even now. Yes, there'll come a day when Jesus returns and makes all things will be set right. But in the meantime, his kingdom is spreading and growing and restoring life to all those who believe in it and we get to be part of that. Waiting means working towards that end. So what does that look like? A word kept coming up in my studies was this word restore. Understand that God is going to bring about restoration to his kingdom uh, and his creation. It's the question that the disciples asked Jesus right before he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. It's what Israel has been crying out for God to do for thousands of years. We see it throughout the scriptures. Uh, It's what creation itself groans for restoration, to be free from corruption and restored to perfection once again, as we saw in Romans 8. It's what God plans on doing with our bodies when he resurrects them to new life. As the psalmist writes and the apostles pick up later on, Psalm 30, 
verse 3. God is about the business of restoration. We're awaiting for his return when that will be complete. But in the meantime, God is, through his kingdom, doing a restorative work. He's mending broken hearts. He's bringing life to the spiritually dead. He's giving sight to those who could not see him. And we wait for that final restoration to take place. But God is still constantly demonstrating tastes of what that will be like one day through his people and creation. Is anyone else here really excited about him making all things new? Man, restoring creation to perfection. I catch myself thinking about that a lot. Usually when things are going very poorly. Yesterday, I was under someone's house trying to fix a clogged up sink. I'm not a plumber. God bless plumbers. I've done my fair share of of snaking drains over the years. It's not my favorite thing. Um, You know, I I was sitting down there in, in the dark, you know, in the dirt, uncomfortable. And I'm pulling out wads of wet hair and chicken chunks and gelatin of who knows what from who knows when and who knows who. And I'm picking it out of the snake with my fingers, dwelling on the golden rule of plumbers that my plumber friend once told me that on your lunch break, never lick your fingers. And I found myself pining for the return of Jesus. Jesus comes soon. I mean, you could have come back a couple hours ago, but that must have been for a reason. But would you just come now? And that's just silly. And you might think twice before you shake my hand later after service. It's, it's been thoroughly washed. At, but it makes sense, though. Okay, that there, there's this idea of restoration, and, and the key command that the apostles used to the early church was this command to restore. We get to be agents of restoration on earth. We are representatives of what God can and will do at his second coming. Do you want to know what to do while you wait? We'll get to restoring. 2 Corinthians 13, 9 and 11 says, For we are glad when when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now maybe there's a relationship you know right now is especially hard in the Christmas season. A relationship that's strained. Uh, maybe it's, it's completely wrecked by your reckoning. Maybe restoration, you, you say, is impossible. I'd venture it's just as impossible as it is for me to stand up here and proclaim the gospel message to someone and they be saved simply by the efforts of my speaking. I probably have a better chance to go to a graveyard and tell those resting in their graves to come forth Yet God is going to do that one day. And just as God gives life through the speaking of the gospel to those who would receive it today, why couldn't he restore the brokenness we see around us and experience through our relationships? Pray that he would and then get to work. Regardless of whether we see the results we want to see or not, God's promise is that our labor is never in vain. We don't know how he's going to use it, but we trust him. So when we look around at all the trash in the world, all the chaos in our world, don't throw your hands up and say, forget it all. Remember, your labor will not be in vain. When you're tempted to look at the degenerate state of California and you throw your hands up and say, there's no point, forget it. Don't do that. We need Christians who will be senators and school board members get to work. When you look at the state of your marriage and think, there's no point, forget it. Don't do that. We don't need more divorces. 
We need radical demonstrations of husbands and wives living out the picture of Christ in the church. So get to work. When you look at the state of your child and are tempted to throw your hands up in despair and say, there's no point, forget it. Don't do that. We need parents who will teach their kids the grace and love of Christ and train them in the way that they should go. So get to work. When you are at work and you look at that stupid blocked up pipe that isn't draining after your failed attempts at snaking the drain and you're tempted to throw your hands up and say, there's no point, forget it. Don't do that. Or maybe you should do that and call a plumber. but then let them do that, okay? <laughs> but whatever you do, whatever your profession, whatever your circle of influence, we can be a hand of restoration in this broken, sinful world as representatives of God the Redeemer. Do good with the time you have here. It won't be wasted by him. All the while, remember that one day he's going to restore everything and all those kingdoms of the earth that we see and think are hopeless, sorry states of affairs of men, which they are. God is redeeming. Remember the kingdoms of this earth. They're going to be the kingdoms of Christ one day. He will rule and reign. And when it looks like all has been forgotten, the kingdoms of the world one day will become the kingdom of the Lord. He will reign forever and ever. And he invites you and me to be part of that process here and now. And also invites us to be there for the grand coronation on that great day when he returns and restores all things to himself. Now, before I leave you, I'm gonna give you some recommended reading this week as you wait on the Lord and ask questions about what does this look like for my life? What does a Christian's life look like in waiting for the Lord's return? First, remind yourself the promises of, of God and what it means for Christ's return. Come face to face with that in the Bible, what Jesus um, is said that second coming is going to look like. Read the last chapters of Revelation. Start in chapter 19, read through to the end of 22. We should do that like once a month, at least. <laughs> um, it's so good to remind ourselves how it all ends and what we have to look forward to at Jesus' coming and be excited about his arrival to further excite us towards evangelism and kingdom work. Okay, and then second is for us to read about some practicality of the man or woman who wants to live in a way that pleases God while we wait for Jesus' coming because we still live in a sinful, broken world that's being restored by God's grace and yet sin and suffering still abound around us. So how does... Christians, how do the Christians manage through all of that while we wait? I've been reading First and Second Peter recently. In several places in Peter's letters does he talk about the second coming of Christ and what it means for the Christian, but it's also full of practical warnings um, and wisdom for Christians to live in the time of waiting. So give those a go this week. They're great primers on how to wait well. And that's a good start. Keep you busy. So much more um, in prophecies and in the prophets and in Matthew's gospel we could go to, but the end of Revelation, First and Second Peter, especially um, I'd say in Second Peter chapter three, uh, there's an amazing passage about a second coming and awaiting that. Okay, um, I'm going to close here with this encouragement. I'll invite the worship team to come back up. But God has given us life, Christian. He's brought you from death to life. He's restoring you. Andrew shared this verse last week. It was actually in our daily, uh, daily reading this week as well. Psalm 80. Psalm 80 has this chorus over and over again. Verse 3 says, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. He's saved you. He's given you life. His face shines upon you. The return of Jesus gives us hope that in this momentary darkness that it will one day give way to the dawn of his everlasting light. He is restoring you and the world around you through his kingdom message. And as we await the day that that restoration process is complete. But in the meantime, be steadfast and immovable in your faith by going to him who is steadfast 
in his love towards us. And abound in the work of God that he's put before you, knowing that in him it will not be in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his first coming and Lord, just the, the, the ability to celebrate that in Christmas time, the reminder of that and all that that means, all that the gospel means to us, to the world, all that it unlocks for us in the future. And Lord, I do pray as we continue to celebrate you, um, Lord, and to remember these things, to be reminded of what's to come, that it would encourage us, Lord, but that you would also help us to be steadfast and immovable, that we would look to you for our strength in all of these things, all of the suffering and, and hardships we face. God, help us to face them with you. Thank you for the reminder that you are always with us and that what we do for you, Lord, it's not in vain. Be pleased with our work that we do for you. Be pleased with our worship now as we sing more praise to you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, To go along with our Psalm 83, to restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. I'll send you out with the original benediction, number 6, 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So have a great week, and we'll see you guys back here Christmas Eve next week.